Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the horrific shooting at an LBGTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs that left five people dead and 19 injured and discuss the obvious connection between the demonization of gay and trans people by Republican politicians and lawmakers who have passed more than 300 anti-LGBTQ bills across 36 states in the past year. Joining us is Joe, now Josephine Wenke, a writer, social critic and LGBTQ rights activist. She is the founder and publisher of TransUber, a publishing company with a focus on promoting LGBTQ rights, free thought and equality for all people. In addition to the talk show and novel, Wenke is the author of Free Air, Poems, Papal Bull, and Ex-Catholic Calls Out the Catholic Church, You've Got to Be Kidding, A Radical Satire on the Bible, and Male is America. Her latest book is The Human Agenda, Conversations About Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. Then we'll look into the two parallel tracks the January 6th and Mar-a-Lago trials will be on, one led by Special Counsel Jack Smith at the Department of Justice in private, and the other in the media and at the radical right House of Representatives, now controlled by extremists and Trump cult followers. Joining us is Laurie Levinson, who holds the David W. Burnham Chair in Ethical Advocacy at Loyola University School of Law. Prior to joining Loyola Law School, she served for eight years as an assistant United States attorney in Los Angeles and has written widely on criminal law, focusing on criminal procedure, and on the relationship between the law and the media. Then finally, we'll assess how the Soccer World Cup is going after much criticism of why Qatar was chosen in the first place, the thousands of migrant workers who died constructing the stadiums, and the banning of beer for fans and armbands for players supporting LGBTQ rights. Joining us is Andre Makovitz, a professor of comparative politics and German studies, professor of political science, professor of Germanic languages and literatures, as well as a professor of sociology at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. His books include Offside, Soccer and American Exceptionalism, Gaming the World, How Sports Are Reshaping Global Politics and Culture, and Women in American Soccer and European Football, Different Roads to Shared Glory. And joining us now is Joe Wanky, who is a writer, social critic, and LGBTQ rights activist. He's the founder and publisher of TransUber, a publishing company with a focus on promoting LGBTQ rights, free thought, and equality for all people. In addition to the talk show, a novel, Wanky is the author of Free Air, Poems, Papal Bull, and Ex-Catholic Calls Out the Catholic Church, You've Got to Be Kidding, A Radical Satire of the Bible, and Mail is America. His latest book is The Human Agenda, Conversations About Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joe Wanky. Thank you so much, Anne, for inviting me on your show. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Joe, although the circumstances, of course, are horrible because we're going to be talking about what happened Saturday night, Sunday morning in Colorado at an LGBTQ nightclub Club Q in Colorado Springs, in which five people were killed, 25 others injured by a 22-year-old young man, heavily armed, with an assault rifle and a pistol. And frankly, this is not a surprise. This is happening across the country, and uh, we have one political party in this country that's been captured by 
hateful radicals who have promoted anti-gay and anti-trans agendas with legislation and rhetoric. You even have the most popular person running for president short of Donald Trump on the Republican side, the governor of Florida, building a career out of scapegoating trans kids and all in the name of anti-wokeness. So there's an obvious connection, is there not, uh, Joe, with the rhetoric and these shootings? Uh, There absolutely is, because I think that it gives certain people a sense of permission or validation that being hateful towards certain minorities is fine and that nothing's going to happen to them, uh, that there will be no consequences. And, you know, I, I think it's true that Americans are feeling more and more vulnerable all the time because we have this epidemic of gun violence in the country. So nobody necessarily feels safe anywhere. There's a sense that something terrible could happen at any point, no matter where one is. But for certain groups, I would certainly include LGBTQ people, people in the community. Uh, I'm a transgender woman. We do not necessarily feel safe anyway, because it's just a matter of running into the wrong person. And you could be bullied or harassed or threatened or ridiculed. Uh, And in some cases, the consequences can be tragic. And so for the community and and many people in Colorado Springs who um, are familiar with Club Q have said, you know, this was a safe haven. Um, They didn't necessarily feel safe in the workplace, particularly if they're not out, maybe not even safe at home with their family, but this is a place where you could go and just relax for a few hours. And we see that, in in fact, uh, by being an LGBTQ club, it's a target. And so it's really a shattering experience for people in the community and you know, no matter what, you, you just try to go about your life. But it, it's certainly um, something that is difficult to ignore that you may be targeted simply for doing something that's as harmless as just having some fun with some friends. And but yes, uh, you know, the rhetoric on the right is, is really intended to connect with people who are angry and hateful. And it's extremely cynical because the only purpose involved is promoting somebody's political career. If you look at DeSantis in Florida, that's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, in in Texas, the state now, uh, if it gets word that there's a transgender child and a family, the state is now investigating those families. And there's a threat of of a child being taken away from um, their parents. And so uh, we're, we're in a very extreme situation and uh, it's difficult to see uh, it getting better anytime soon, unfortunately. Well, you yourself were attacked at a railway station in Stamford, Connecticut and knocked onto the railway tracks. Fortunately, you were saved. Uh, yes, huh? indeed. Uh, I live in what would normally be considered a safe community. 
Uh, I was at the Stanford train station. Uh, the express train to Grand Central was approaching, and it sort of went past all of us who were standing on the uh, station platform. And so I was with a group of people walking to get to the rear car, and somebody came up on my right and ran into me with such force that I'll never forget this. I actually, my head was down, and I saw my feet leave the ground, and I flew through the air like a projectile and landed on the tracks five feet behind the express train to Grand Central. So this was either a random attack or somebody perhaps perceived me as being transgender, uh, and nothing was really done about it. I reported it to the police. They said they would check the video camera and then absurdly told me afterwards that the uh, train on the adjacent track was blocking the video camera, so they had no evidence. Of course, I didn't see this person for more than a split second. It made me wonder, why do you place your video cameras where any train can block <laughs> block them? But, you know, that's what happened to me. There was very recently an attack at a bar in Norwalk, which is close by, um, Troop 429, where the, uh, a married couple who owns the bar were both viciously attacked, and almost nothing was being done about it until they went public, and the next day the assailant was arrested. The police are still saying there's no evidence that it is uh, a hate crime or bias, which is not unusual for the police to say. Uh, but it's certainly quite a coincidence for somebody to just walk into a bar and start attacking the owners. So, you know, the bottom line is that we are living in a time where there is it, it's become normal for there to be hateful rhetoric and it's become normal for there to be these terrible mass shootings. And uh, it, it's, it's certainly it's it's extremely disturbing. And, and when there is no evidence solution. Um, I think it's cause for all all Americans to be very concerned. Well, just a few days ago, the National Center for Transgender Equality released a report which found that 47 transgender people were killed in the past year and across the country, meanwhile, legislators have introduced more than 300 anti-LGBTQ bills across 36 states. So it's hard not to see the connection there between all of the hate that's spewing forth from the radicals who've captured the Republican Party and the legislation so that they've put forth. So what's going to reverse this, Joe? How do you, you get the protection and your community get the protection you need? Well... I do think there's a political dimension to it, and I do think that by voting and voting out of office, people who who perpetuate hate and spread hate uh, is, is one thing that we can do. But there really needs to be broad-based education of people. Um, I mean, shows like this where we're discussing this can be helpful. I don't really... Just be honest, I don't have a solution, though, for people who live in the right-wing bubble and who are not interested in, in being educated. And as we all know, that as soon as you uh, demonize someone, you marginalize them, you begin thinking of them as somehow less than you, or not entirely human, uh, it becomes much easier to justify an attack. And I mean, 
the, the best way to educate people is to get to know each other. You know, if you know a transgender person, you're going to discover uh, they're not mentally ill. There's nothing necessarily wrong with them. They're the same as you are. They simply have a different gender identity. Uh, the gender identity doesn't necessarily align with their uh, biological sex denominated birth. Uh, it's just a difference. And, you know, what's marvelous about human beings is that we are so diverse and different and we should be celebrating difference instead of demonizing it. And I really think this response to the idea somebody's different, whether it's because of sexual orientation, gender identity, race, uh, beliefs, etc., is really at the bottom of, of bigotry. But when you have not only, of course, uh, the Republican Party, which is now taken over by a frankly fascist element uh, that wants to overthrow violently uh, our democracy, but of course we also know it's religious teaching. Uh, the Catholic Church, uh, evangelical Christians do not recognize that there's authenticity in transgender gender identity, and they demonize same-sex relationships and so forth, that also gives permission to people to be hostile toward members of the LGBTQ community. So you have not only this entire political structure, but uh, institutional religion, at least certain major elements of it, that demonize the LGBTQ community. And that is a huge issue. Right. Well, you mentioned authentic. I mean, isn't that the issue here, that that you and others want to live an authentic life as opposed to an inauthentic one, having to hide in the closet? Isn't that the progress that's been made? And yeah. what are these people like, Lauren Bobbitt and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Carrie Lake and company? Do they want yes. people to go back in the closet? I mean, maybe they should talk to... Senator Lindsey Graham, find out what he thinks about that. Yes, well, th this is the problem, uh, that there's always been a price to pay for coming out. Uh, and I think particularly for transgender people, you have uh, so many families that reject their children. That's also true for, for gay people. So there are lots of different dimensions to this. It's in the home, it's in the community, it's at school, uh, it's in our political rhetoric. Uh, we're just easy targets of people, you know, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Lauren Boebert, and the like. And uh, they are doing it cynically, but there are some people out there who are listening to them who are just on the edge of committing acts of violence. And it's easy for what they are saying to push them over that edge. And for, uh, for once again, for them to feel they have permission that it's legitimate, and that there won't be any consequences. Well, interesting enough, in this country, the number of people that identify as LBGTQ has risen to 7.1% from 5.6% in 2020. So, I'm not surprised at that. I mean, despite all of the uh, fears and concerns that we have coming out, uh, 
I think that everybody just wants to be who, who, who they are. You know, we just want to live our lives authentically and happily. And there is more support uh, than there was, despite all of the hostility that we're talking about. And I think that that number will continue to rise, despite all of this uh, violence and hatred. And, you know, who knows what the actual percentage of LGBTQ people is in the general population. I don't think it's 2%. We're not talking about 7 It could be higher. We might find out that it's not all that unusual for somebody to be a member of the LGBTQ community. Uh, you know, as we become less marginalized in the fullness of time. Uh, but we are reminded quite often that we're not there yet in terms of uh, people celebrating differences. I mean, we, we talk about hatred and hostility, and then, of course, there's tolerance, there's acceptance, which is still not really where, exactly where we want to be, because if somebody says, well, I accept you, there's something a little bit self-righteous about that. We should really be celebrating difference and embracing people who are different. I, why do we want everybody to look like us and think like us? I, I love meeting somebody who's different from me, and you can learn from that and be enriched by it. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, uh, Joe, the character that was, he was subdued at the scene. He only, he managed to get off a lot of shots and kill five people into injured 25, but he was stopped by a couple of the patrons of the club uh, who were very brave. They disarmed him. But it turns out he's got a criminal record of bomb threats, which is hard to believe that somebody with a criminal record having made bomb threats, given Colorado's red flag law, that he yeah. could have been able to get hold of these weapons, an assault rifle. Yeah, and, well, uh, he threatened his own mother. He was, the, the bomb threat was with his own mother. Right. Um, and, and there was a standoff for a while with the police over that. But yes, you know, there are more guns in this country than people. And uh, there's, there's certainly an obsession with guns. It's a whole additional topic, but it's also at the heart of what we're discussing. And that it is that it's so easy for anyone to get a semi-automatic weapon. And to your point, this person entered the bar. The shooting didn't last for more than a minute. And five people dead, 25 people wounded. I was through the heroism of a few of the customers there that, that there, there weren't more people killed or injured. And that's because of semi-automatic weapons and high-capacity magazines, <laughs> none of which anybody needs. Right, but somebody's got to figure out why this guy slipped through the cracks with the Colorado red flag law. If Absolutely. If he had a police record for threatening to blow up his own mother, I would have thought that would get somebody's attention. And so... There's clearly some problems here with, with even what little gun control or gun safety has managed to get on the books, given the hostility of the NRA and, you know, all these Republican lawmakers. I don't know whether you saw the pictures at Christmas time where they, some of them sent out uh, Christmas cards with the entire family armed to the teeth. I mean, these people are really sick. Yeah. But... I think that the point that you made earlier is something that I keep trying to argue for you know, banging into the wind, I guess, 
if you look at the Second Amendment, it said a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state. Well, we are not secure and we are not free. And that ought to be the argument there, that how can you be live in a free state and, and have security when you can't go into a club, a nightclub, without being massacred or a mall or a church or a school? I mean, this is where the argument should be, surely. It's not a question of infringing anybody's rights. It's a question of giving rights to the majority of the people who want to live a free and open life in a country and not feel threatened in their daily lives. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the point is that we all have a right to self-defense, but we don't have a right to particular weapons. Do we all have a right to uh, our own personal nuclear weapon or shoulder-mounted rocket launchers? Uh, launchers? I mean, it's ridiculous. If you at least admit that there should be some restriction on the type of weapon, then we can have an intelligent conversation about why in the world anybody would need a semi-automatic weapon and high-capacity magazines. Well, Joe Wanky, I thank you for joining us. And um, now I will read your bio the correct way since you've transitioned. So, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you again, and It's my pleasure, and have a wonderful day. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Joe Wanky, who's a writer, social critic, and LGBT rights activist. She is the founder and publisher of TransUber, a publishing company with a focus on promoting LGBTQ rights, free thought, and equality for all people. In addition to the talk show and novel, Wanky is the author of Free Air, Poems, Papal Bull, and Ex-Catholic Calls Out the Catholic Church, You Gotta Be Kidding, a Radical Satire of the Bible, and Male is America. Her latest book is The Human Agenda, Conversations About Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking to the two parallel tracks the January 6th and the Mar-a-Lago trials will be on, one led by Special Counsel Jack Smith at the Department of Justice in private and the other in the media and at the Radical Right House of Representatives, now controlled by extremists and Trump cult members. I want to break free. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Laurie Levinson, who holds the David W. Burnham Chair in Ethical Advocacy at the Loyola University School of Law. Prior to joining Loyola Law School, she served for eight years as an assistant United States attorney in Los Angeles, and she's written widely on criminal law, focusing both on criminal procedure and on the relationship between the law and the media. Welcome to Background Briefing, Laurie Levinson. Thank you very much. 
So, Laurie, given the artillery that's being arrayed against Jack Smith, particularly in Republican circles, starting, of course, with Donald Trump, but going to the new Judiciary Committee headed, headed by Jim Jordan, is this battle going to be fought out? Or are there going to be two parallel battles, the DOJ and Jack Smith getting on with their work in private while their bombs are being lobbed at them in the media and throughout how many months it takes, or perhaps years, I don't know how long this procedure will go on. But is that the battle ahead? I think there are two battles going on. One is the one in the Department of Justice where you have the professional prosecutor now spent looking at the case, going through it methodically, using the grand jury, and then you're going to have the political battle that's going to be in Congress and on the news waves and elsewhere. But the one that's going to actually matter is the investigation that has been going and continues to go on now with the special counsel. So what can the Republicans do to thwart this case? I think what they're going to try to do is sort of delegitimize the investigation as it goes on so that whatever happens, they're still going to claim it's political, even though it's not political or at least less political using a special counsel. They're certainly never going to accept it. They're going to sort of raise the conspiracy theories as they have done in the past, raise questions even about Jack Smith's background, um, and then, you know, claim that this was making a mountain out of a molehill. If they go too far, they do risk something, which is to the extent that they have people making false presentations or hiding evidence or obstructing the investigation, that will just make it worse. Well, they certainly went after Robert Mueller, and he was a Republican and former head of the FBI and a Marine and a veteran, a war veteran. I mean, he had stellar credentials. And Jack Smith is apparently a political independent, but already, of course, Donald Trump has called him a radical leftist. So well, they... <laughs> it is name, it's name-calling on some level, but you have to have, and I think Smith probably does, sort of Teflon. You have to wear Teflon if you get in these positions and say, people are going to call me all sorts of things, so ultimately I have to do what I'm going to do based upon the evidence and be able to support it with the evidence. I think one of the concerns about prior investigations was in fact how you had the Mueller report, but it didn't match what the Attorney General Barr was saying about the report. People had forgotten to look at the evidence, and that's going to be key. Well, the Mueller report is probably the least read document in human history, as far as I know. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not even sure that the unredacted reports have really been made public, but even the report as it stands reveals so much information about Trump's ties to the Russians, which is absolutely indictable. And then you've got on top of that the Senate intelligence report, and just recently the Director of National Intelligence issued a similar report. So is there something wrong with our culture, our media, in a way that these important investigations uh, the findings, we can be distracted from them by Bill Barr, as we were with, with the, the Mueller report. And somehow, if you muddy the water sufficiently, there's nothing clear at the end of the day. I agree with you. I get terribly concerned that people just focus on the quips, 
on the louder voice, the more outrageous claims, and they don't want to do the hard work to look at the actual facts. I think the last time our country actually looked carefully at facts was the 9-11 report, and then many people didn't read that. But that had all the details. And I think that what Smith is going to try to do is to come up with whatever charging decisions he will, but have those based upon the evidence. In our country, though, we've become so political that people just almost don't care. You know, okay, let's assume Trump did this, but – and I think that from the justice point of view, it's not a but – You either follow the rule of law or you don't. Uh, Meanwhile, I think much of the distraction, as you have aptly put it, is going in the direction of, well, you know, they're being hyper technical here. They wouldn't bring the charges against others without even looking closely at what the facts would show. So do you think that there's more to this case or or these two cases, January the 6th and and the Mar-a-Lago classified documents in terms of Trump himself. I mean, the assumption is that the Attorney General Merrick Allen would not have announced a special counsel had he not had something serious. And then even Bill Barr has suggested in an interview on PBS's firing line that indeed it looks as if uh, there is something indictable there going on. But could it be more than just Donald Trump? Could we find out that I don't know what the timeline is, and I'd be interested in getting your take on that, but do you think at some point or other Jack Smith may drop some indictments on other people as well as Donald Trump? Well, in some ways, that may be more likely than even the indictments against Donald Trump. As we all know, that Donald Trump has surrounded himself by people who do his work for him. They're going to be the front line in terms of looking at offenses. So it wouldn't surprise me that if there are charges, that Trump wouldn't necessarily even be in the first list of such charges, that they would get the people who are more hands-on. There's also Trump sets himself up in some of this plausible deniability posture. Uh, You can see it, whether it's sincere or not, is a big question. But in terms of January 6th, he himself didn't march on the Capitol. He's very lucky that the Secret Service kept him from doing so, but that created some distance from him. And then he's going to, of course, making some First Amendment arguments saying that he was just involved in some high rhetoric, but not criminal behavior. We don't know if that's true or not because we haven't gotten his information either to Congress or what's being presented to the special counsel. And when it comes to the documents in Mar-a-Lago, Trump marches by his own drummer. So it actually wouldn't surprise people perhaps to hear that Trump just thought, you know, uh, these are my personal documents. I can show off. I can use them in my library. I can give them as gifts. That shouldn't be a defense. And it certainly would not be a defense for those who know better, but that's going to be a tougher issue for Smith to sort through. But Smith prosecuted Jeffrey Sterling, a CIA officer who gave documents to James Risen of the New York Times. So he has some experience in that regard, and it would seem to me that what Jeffrey Sterling did pales in comparison to the potential damage that Donald Trump has done from what we know. I mean... Even if he didn't want to monetize these documents and just kept the them huge as trophies. question, 
The huge uh, question you've uh, hit on it is, did he give these to anyone? Who else did he give access to? The big answer to why. Why did he keep these documents? Right. But that's the point, is that the documents are already gone. In other words, from a counterintelligence point of view, the U.S. has already lost all that information because there's no way to know with the chain of custody whether this stuff has been compromised. And if we don't know the value of these secrets that have been lost, but it could mount into the billions. It could. Um, it's an enormous task to take a look at what happened here. I think some people are misinformed and think it's as simple as putting some documents in a box and counting them up and know the answer. There's huge questions about who had access, why these particular documents, were there other documents that we don't even know about. It's not knowing what you don't know that makes this such a challenging investigation. So just if we could, Laurie Levinson, address the question of a timeline. I know it's speculation, but I mean, how long do you think it'll take Jack Smith to get up to speed, given that there's an assumption that quite a lot of work has been done even rumors that indictments are already ready. So how long in this heated political environment do you think it will take before? We know, as we established in the beginning, that we'll be hearing nothing but attacks and hyperbole for months to come. But then at some point or other, even when the pundits are saying it's all lost, Jack Smith is the same kind of criticism we've been hearing about Merrick Garland being too cautious. I'm sure we'll hear some of that as well. And then suddenly indictments will drop and everybody will wake up. So when do you think we'll reach that point? It's impossible to know for sure. Smith does not have a statute of limitations problem. In other words, the law is not putting that pressure on him. Politics is. I would expect that he's spending this time through the end of the year, through the month, uh, getting up to speed on what has happened in the investigation. As you mentioned, there's already been a tremendous amount of investigation. We're talking about reams of reams. Uh, Then the question is, what has not been done? And, you know, that will take, I would guess, perhaps months to do as well. Then there's the question of whether they bring charges against other people to push them to cooperate against Trump. And then finally, it's the question of, do they have the type of case that they want to have? Because if you, you know, go after the former head of state, you really have to win that case. So in some situations, you might be willing to indict with slightly less evidence. I think that they're going to want to look at every aspect of it. And for some people, that'll be frustrating because it appears overly cautious. But it would be so damaging to the Justice Department and perhaps to the country to bring a trial and not have that compelling type of evidence. But if we do go to trial, and it's appealed and appealed and appealed, which it would be given Donald Trump's record, and it gets to the Supreme Court, my sense is that if it's tried in uh, in Washington, D.C., which I think is the most likely venue, do you think that you could actually get a jury in this country that would be neutral? Because you have to assume that, what, Trump has about 30% of the support in this country, Many argue that the support that he has is almost cult-like in its blindness. So could you get a jury together without one or two or three Trumpsters on it? It wouldn't be easy because jurors often have hidden agendas. 
especially in high-profile cases. We do have a lot of high-profile cases that happen. This may be the one that sort of literally is the trial of the century, but I'm not going to say it's impossible. You know, I think that at some point, and the longer it goes, you know, I think the less of the luster of Trump is out there, that it might be possible. It's just a momentous task to bring a case like this because it is so, you know, sort of shrouded in all the politics and rhetoric of our times. So, as I mentioned, and we started out because your work is on the relationship between the law and the media, that there's these two parallel sort of realities. There's the quiet work being done at the DOJ under Jack Smith, uh, which will be kept completely under seal and we won't know about, but there'll be endless speculation. And then there'll be all this noise coming from the Republican right and from their echo chambers in the media like Fox and AON and uh, Newsmax, etc. So that's the environment. But on the on the House side, you've got Jim Jordan in charge of the Judiciary Committee and already the new majority leader, Kevin McCarthy, is he's already announced that that Adam Schiff will be stripped of any membership of any important, and he's been, of course, the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Elon uh, Omar, she's been stripped, and, and so has Eric Swalwell. So when you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene saying that we want to defund the DOJ, I know that's crazy, but can they do some damage? Can do, What kind of leverage do they have over the Department of Justice in terms of the purse springs? Well, uh, I think they can do reputational damage, but I don't think it's likely to, just like we didn't defund the police to defund the Department of Justice. Um, it would be, I think, in some ways, a lot of political whiplash, you know, backlash to them if they tried to do that, because at that point, calling themselves the party of law and order would be very difficult. So I think they can make distract people. They can make them uncomfortable. They can call names. They can create little cults of support in attacking the investigation. But so long as Smith has his agents and they're loyal to him, he has a grand jury and they are doing their work, I'm not sure they can cross the line. In terms of defunding the Department of Justice, it's already moving in a direction that I think whatever steps they take would not have that immediate effect. Um, and, I, you know, in terms of even the leadership in the House, they don't have a strong enough majority that I think that they would be able to do the type of damage that perhaps Jim Jordan wants to do. Well, Laura Levinson, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Laurie Levinson, who holds the David W. Burnham Chair in Ethical Advocacy at the Loyola University School of Law. Prior to joining Loyola Law School, she served for eight years as an assistant United States attorney in Los Angeles, and she's written widely on criminal law, focusing both on criminal procedure and on the relationship between the law and the media. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of how the Soccer World Cup is going after much criticism of why Qatar was chosen in the first place, the thousands of migrant workers who died constructing the stadiums, and the banning of beer for fans and armbands for players supporting LGBTQ rights.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Andre Markovitz, who's the Professor of Comparative Politics and German Studies, Professor of Political Science, Professor of Germanic Languages and Literatures, as well as a Professor of Sociology at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. He has written on topics as varied as German and Austrian politics, anti-Semitism, anti-Americanism, social democracy, social movements, the European left and the European right. And his books include Offside, Soccer and American Exceptionalism, Gaming the World, How Sports Are Reshaping Global Politics and Culture, and Women in American Soccer and European Football, Different Roads to Shared Glory. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andre Markovitz. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And today, of course, at the World Cup, uh, the United States played Wales. That's a a David and Goliath there in in itself, Wales being (laughs) this tiny little... Part yeah, but not the, not in not in soccer terms. In, the, in no. soccer terms, the U.S. is a dwarf. I see. Or men's in men's soccer terms, it's a dwarf. Right. Well, the dwarves drew with uh, Wales, right? Yes, yes. Uh, the two mediocre teams drew one-one, uh, and uh, I think the U.S. will be ruining the fact that we didn't win the three points. But such is such is the game. Right. And there are complaints about the ref already. What yeah, you... I mean, that's true. But, you know, I always, uh, there complain, uh, you know, to s- certain sides of, you know, who feel um, that they should have done better, complain again uh, about the refs. I, 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 I agree that I watched the game. I agree that the Qatarian ref uh, team was uh, slightly uh, making decisions that weren't uh, in a, in favoring the US team but I don't uh, that's not why we drew. Sure. So let's talk about the lead up to this uh, World yes. Cup which has been mired in controversy from the beginning with yes. the selection of Qatar itself and FIFA of course is is incredibly corrupt. The the, <laughs> the history is it's just the FBI had to step in here in the U.S. and uh, well, in, and and in Switzerland they, they they got arrested in this fancy hotel and the you know uh, anyway yes uh, that's not even an issue how corrupt the FIFA is yes. So what happened? How did did money change hands to get get uh, the other choice was Australia, right? No, 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 no. Well, yes, the other choice would have been the U.S. U.S., Australia, I think South Korea again, and Japan, like in 2002. But this is now 12 years ago, so I don't quite... But but certainly the U.S. and England, actually. No, no, sorry, sorry. England was beaten out by Russia. Um, uh, England um, uh, was should have been 2016, and Russia because it's uh, it, it, FIFA does these by continent, so it had to be European. It was the European turn after 2014 in 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 Brazil, South America, then Europe. So it should have been Russia or England. Russia won, uh, and then uh, neither South America nor England nor nor. Europe and hence the other world, which it would in the U.S., Australia, uh, South Korea, Japan, and Qatar, and Qatar won it. Um, look, there's no re- real reason to go into this house. Things were changed hands. There's a, there's wonderful Netflix stuff on this. I mean, it's so well known how corrupt it is. Um, it's. Uh, 
you know, done deal, and um, there's no point in uh, continuing to complain. And I actually uh, find it, you know, sort of, uh, yeah. There's no, no, no point in having, so, you know. Now it's there, and 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 let's just play it. And so, uh, uh, no, no, I know. get that, Andre. But does that also mean that we shouldn't talk about the thousands of migrant workers who died contracting? Oh no, constructing no, 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 no. Oh no, oh no, absolutely. The thousands of migrant workers that were killed. The 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 ridiculous. Uh, anti-gay posture of the regime. Um, our dear friend Grant Wall, who is a uh, one of the leading soccer journalists in the United States, um, just uh, sent a note that he wore a uh, rainbow-colored uh, T-shirt uh, with a soccer ball, and that's with no comment, but just a, and he ran into trouble, and and uh, they took away his cell phone and. Um, so no, no, no! Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's it, this should have never happened. It happened only because of FIFA's amazing corruption. Um, and uh, but it's now a done deal, and uh, they seem to have done a fairly good, uh, you know, very impressive, uh, you know, eight venues. Um, some of which will actually be dismantled and then given to African countries. One of them is actually made out of um, uh, completely recyclable, uh, recyclable uh, materials, which then will become containers, shipping containers. Um, I'm just saying, uh, you know, it's it's uh, onward. Uh, and above all, what I find sort of hard is, uh, you know, the the um, the criticism is always asked of of of, of various football managers like Gareth Southgate, the England manager and whatever. And these guys are over their heads. What, what are they going to do? And, you know, they, they're they not there to defend their positions. And I find it, I kind of find it silly to now um, uh, really go to town over these uh, European managers. And on the other hand, what I found absolutely abominable is Infantino, who is the Gianni, who is the head of FIFA, gave this rambling Trump-like uh, talk of an hour yesterday or the day before about, you know, accusing Europeans of being duplicitous and, and for... Um, hypocritical. You know, yeah. Hypocritical and, 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 and just, uh, you know, in a rambling, awful, awful speech, which I think backfired big time, which I'm very happy about. Right. He, he actually, he said that he had empathy with the Qatar and the hypocrisy of the Europeans because, because he, was he was bullied. Bullied because he had red hair and freckles, yeah. Yeah, but he was Boo-hoo. Italian, yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So then, given that this is just underway, I mean, they seem to be getting people there. I mean, it's harder yes, than hell, he- and it's got to be the most expensive place in the world to stay. True, but I, you know, it's in- interesting that you know there clearly were, um, you know, there were Ecuadorians there. Although there are all kinds of also uh, various videos online where you see uh, Indian uh, foreign workers dressed up as Argentinians, as Germans, as uh, various other uh, fan like uh, like uh, fan groups, and it's uh, you know you can clearly see that these were these are not um, Argentinians or Germans or Brazilians or whatever. 
But on the other hand, yes, there are lots of the lots of Welshmen or people from Wales were were there, and uh, and but that of course is a relatively rich country, but also Ecuador. So so far, um, at least the, the television seems to be showing. A, a uh, an existing presence of all the teams that are there. Clearly, there are lots of Iranians, but that's just across the bay, so or across mm-hmm. the the Gulf there. Right, and the what was notable about the Iranian team was that during their national anthem, when it was played ahead of the game, they looked very solemn and did not sing the anthem in protest to what's happening in Iran itself. Yes. Uh, although, again, with these singing things, I'm always a little wary because, you know, they're always... They're, they're, this is also very new, actually. It's one of my new research projects, the singing of the anthem. It didn't happen when I grew up in you know, the 60s and 70s. No one sang the anthem. And now it's become this kind of marker. And so, for example, in 1996, when the French uh, did not do well in the Euro in England, everybody you know, was guessing why the African, uh, the, 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 the African French players or of African origin or of uh, Caribbean origin weren't singing the anthem. Were they really French? Then in 1998, they uh, you know, still weren't singing, but no one worried because they won. And so the same with the Germans. Uh, and so I'm, I'm a little worried about this because if you look at the American players, not all of them sang and some of them just don't sing because, you know, they have, they don't know the words or, or, or I'm not saying, I'm not saying that this was not a protest by the Iranians. I just don't know, but I would not play, not give major credence or, um, interpret, uh, these who is singing and who isn't and what their demeanor is at the anthem. They're, they're soccer players, they're football players, they're worried about this very important match. Uh, who knows what... Uh, so I, I would not, you know, I would not draw great major conclusions by the fact that they weren't singing the anthem. So, I mean, who do you think is going to be the teams to watch then? Let's let's talk oh, sports. Uh, let's talk, I mean, clearly the two South American powers, Brazil and Argentina, they're actually favored... Um, Argentina has not lost in 23 games. Uh, uh, Brazil is also, I mean, these are clearly by talent, uh, phenomenal teams, but, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, these things don't, aren't played on paper and, and, uh, who knows, um, major f- favorites have actually fallen before, but I think very impressive are, well, I mean, the England, England played brilliantly today, but of course against uh, Iran, but still, um, also phenomenally talented players. Uh, the the Belgians are very good. The French are clearly the the the, the uh, you know they're the title holders there, uh, but um, they actually have quite a few injuries. So I wonder. The Belgians I already said. Um, I mean, the Europeans are very good. I mean, the Danes potentially. Um, uh, the Dutch uh, are always uh, somehow underachieve, and then for me, the the, the sleeping giant is always Germany. Uh, Germany is a Turniermannschaft, as they call themselves, and as they are called, and they are almost other than last time in Russia, uh, but other than that, they always, I think, if anything, overperform at tournaments. The Dutch underperform, and the Germans overperform. So these are all um, possibilities, and. Uh, um, you know, um, it'll be potentially could be a very good tournament. So you basically gave us about what twenty teams 
that could win. Well, you asked me about, I mean, I couldn't, yeah, I think not, uh, I would say five or six European teams, the two Latin American teams are all, um, I would not be surprised at any of them. Right. Uh, so, you know, just in terms of, um, you mentioned this press conference by the new head of FIFA who replaced the incredibly corrupt Sepp Blatter, his bizarre press conference notwithstanding, I mean, there is an element of hypocrisy coming from the Europeans, particularly from, I guess, from U.S. and Britain. They can't, and France, they can't wait to sell arms to these countries, right? These medieval monarchies that are completely undemocratic. So is that, do you think, a, an example of hypocrisy? Yeah, I mean, there's the Germans, so yeah, yes and no. I mean, it's a different, sure. I mean, the, the, the people sell arms to, <laughs> you know, everybody. I mean, this is not a, I don't think that is necessarily criterion that people sell arms and to very, very shady regimes and uh, whether one then holds a completely sort of what something was supposed to be voluntary and a very kind of uplifting thing to go to a country like this. So these are two, they really are two different, they're different metrics. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know what, what your point is about. Of course, you're selling arms to, um, you know, the, 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 the U.S. is a big Navy base there. I mean, it's, what's the, what are you saying? This has nothing to do with the fact that you shouldn't be holding, you know, the World Cup or Olympics, or you should have some. After all, these are supposedly um, uh, events that are, um, you know, uplifting, and they're supposedly there to bring people together, and and all of this stuff, which of course we know is not the case, but uh, it's also become a huge um, commercial, uh, you know, orgy. Um, in terms of companies and so on, um, but that you know that's the same with all these mega events. I mean, uh, you know, from the Super Bowl, which is a one event gig, all the way to the Olympics, which is also quadrennial, like the World Cup, although only two weeks, not four weeks, and not in a country, but in a city. But these are just these mega events that are dominated by television, and now actually more and more by streaming and by. Uh, you know, internet things, and uh, um, I, so I, I see that's a different. It's a different thing that is operative here. Well, what I was implying was that you know the the fist bump that Biden recently gave Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia got a lot of criticism because people were saying, "Well, we talk a good game on human rights, but at the end of the day, we'll uh, deal with these despotic medieval monarchies." And uh, yes. That's the point that I was trying to make. Yeah, of course, but that's not surprising. I mean, that's you know, uh, it's realpolitik. It's it's what is it in the interest of of the, yes, I'm not um, uh, exactly, but uh, fist bumping Saudi Arabia is a different story than having um, a four week uh, 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 tournament that is supposed to be kind of about. Um, it's not about power politics. It's about a game. Um, you know, take place in 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 in, in, in a country that with such a record, so, so the, the, they're really two different things. Well, the game itself is truly international, and it does yes. bring in people from all around the world, and it's a shared passion that people in Africa have, in the Middle East, in Europe, Asia, 
Latin America. So yeah, that's, that's and even here in the United States, belatedly, yeah. right? Yeah, but but that's actually the good side of it, if you will. That in some ways, uh, it's you know, it's the first time that it's held in an Arab country, and it's uh, you know, there's the, the Arab countries are are mad about the, the football and. Um, you know, there's some great players in the premiership, and so why not hold it there? And none of them would be um, are, are, are exemplary places, none of them, uh, um, you know, in terms of their political uh, positions and, and, and human rights and so on. Um, but, um, you know, with it's, 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 it's ultimately a, a showpiece, show and one could have opted for something better than that you know and the next time it's coming to the u.s with by the way with many more teams u.s mexico and canada and um, you know i can't wait it'll be my last one most likely and uh will be my seventh um, male world cup i've been to three female world cups as well and there really are quite impressive things i mean it's um, uh, a phenomenal phenomenal event well, Andre Markovitz, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Andre Markovitz, who's a professor of comparative politics and German studies, professor of political science, professor of Germanic languages and literatures, as well as a professor of sociology at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. His books include Offside, Soccer and American Exceptionalism, Gaming the World, How Sports Are Reshaping Global Politics and Culture, and Women in American Soccer and European Football, Different Roads to Shared Glory. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.